Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavyhops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. My name's Sam. Ken Schramm is the founder and president of Schramm's Mead in Ferndale, Michigan, and author of The Complete Mead Maker, widely considered to be the book on home honey wine production. Using proven methods from the wine world, including punch downs, pump overs, free runs, real fruit, and lengthy maturation times for clarity, Ken seeks to showcase a true reflection of the ingredients in his meads. In never-ending pursuit to get his hands on the best possible fruit and reduce the carbon footprint of his meads, Ken and his family have undertaken the endeavor of building a six-acre orchard not far from the meadery. Ken walks us through his orchard, discussing the berries, Sharbeck cherries, wine grapes, peri pears, and plum varieties currently grown. Starting an orchard has not been easy. Ken walks us through the ruinous 2012 cherry harvest, during which he burned fires under his cherry trees to avoid frosting after cold weather followed an unusually warm spring. As a result of his efforts, he was able to release the first batches of Heart of Darkness during a time when his business was up against incredible challenges. The Heart of Darkness, a blend of estate-grown, hand-harvested Charbeck cherries, Heritage and Latham raspberries, Crandall and Consort black currants, is now one of Schramm's most sought-after meads. Ken discusses the positives of meads' popularity among beer drinkers. However, there is quite a bit of distance to go in general public and trade awareness, perhaps best exemplified by categorization limitations currently set by the TTB. In the future, Ken hopes the Mead Institute can help standardize practices and language around mead, lending consumers' expectations, much in the way Cicerone Program, Michael Jackson, and Brandy Mosher have for beer. Ken opens up about sources of inspiration, including hardship, family, experiencing new flavors, the produttori model, and sacrifices others endure to produce something delicious. There's also a fantastic story about the band Rush that awaits you at the tail end of this episode. Be sure to check out the episode notes on our website for photos generously provided by Ken, a map of his orchard, a playlist companion for the episode he's created, and a whole lot more. Let's dive and get heavy. Ken Schramm, welcome to Heavy Hops. I'm delighted. I just finished com- uh, reading your book, The Complete Mead Maker, for the second time. And a couple of things struck me on the second reading that I didn't get the first time. And one of them was really the strong emphasis on the quality of ingredients and getting to know people that are involved in the production of those ingredients. So tell me a little bit. Uh, to start off with about why it's important to focus on the quality of ingredients that we're using when it comes to creating mead. Sure. Um, I, well, I, I view it as, I view it as uh, one of the things that's a parallel between so many uh, kind of creative endeavors 
especially those that involve things that we eat and drink. If you talk to great chefs, if you talk to great winemakers, um, and if you, if you talk to uh, even great bakers, they will tell you that you have to start with the best pot. If you, if you really want to have what you, you create come out kind of impressive, uh, distinct, or, or uh, I mean, in, in, in business, they talk about separating yourself from the rest of the world. If you're going to separate yourself from the rest of the world you're, and, and you're going to do it with quality, you have to start with the best things that you can, you can start with. And in, in, in I mean, uh, in, in beer, there, there is uh, a lot of it. I mean, it goes on a, a lot right now with, with respect to, to who's, who is cornering the market on which hops, um, who is, who is using uh, specific, uh, malt varieties there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on and, and and really that was one of the things that that i became aware of early on when i was a, a, a reading my first first uh, uh michael jackson books he was talking about how pilsner or quell used moravian malt and what a big difference it made for their product and I mean, it's not it's not rocket science it's it's really correct it's just it's it's pretty kind of a basic uh premise and, and when I expand it out, I've, I've really become a fan of great uh, alcoholic beverages, period. So I like great scotch and I like really good bourbon and I like uh, all kinds of wine. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Burgundy and, and right now I'm learning about Brunello and, and uh, Barbaresco and Barolo. Uh, I'm just trying to continually learn about <laughs> yeah indeed sam it's just my gosh Barolo and barbaresco are blowing my mind right now those uh, italian red varietals are just some of the most understated i feel right now yeah 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 way underappreciated there's still there are still people that are making and selling bottles of wine that if they came from bordeaux or they came from burgundy they would cost you uh many many hundreds of dollars more for the same degree of quality but that's the whole point. The, the whole point is the, all those people, the, the, the wine people say great wine starts in the vineyard. And, and it does. You, you can't make great wine. You can't make a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You, you, you have to start with the great stuff. I'm not, I didn't make that sentence up. I, I just, I just I like I adopted it and I, I said, fine. Um, so, so that's what we've, we've really, that's what we've really done. We've really tried to figure out how we can with mead parallel what the people in wine are doing the people in wine and they, they, they've got they've, all they've got is about a two thousand year head start on us but i'm sure we can catch up um we, they they have figured out that if if you grow the right thing in the right place and you dedicate yourself to finding all of the practices that need to be followed in order to maximize the quality of that grape when you try to turn it into a, a glass of wine you, you can you can do it you know you can you can figure out all of the parameters that can be adjusted for you can you can plant this variety on this slope you know with with this rootstock and train it this way and use this kind of canopy management and 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 prune it this way and and reduce the the leaf canopy in later in the year and, and 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 then harvest it at this specific time and when you harvest it then you take it and and you hand sort it to make sure that all the great grapes get used and the crappy ones get thrown away all they've been doing they've been doing this 
And I, when I actually, I actually sat down when I was was uh, starting this. I, I counted. I got to twenty seven different ways that these people are doing it, and that's once that that's after they've you know picked out what they're going to grow and plant it where they're going to plant it. I picked out twenty seven different parameters that they're controlling for to maximize fruit quality. Well, we we can you know we we can do that in mead. It's it hasn't been done yet. But, but we have to, you know, if, if we're going to try and, and match the quality that these people are delivering, and you know, some of these wines are, Sam, I think you'll, believe, you'll agree with me, some of these wines are just mind-blowingly good. They, they're the kind of thing where you, you, you pour yourself a glass, and you stick your nose in it, and you sip it, and you have it with a piece of steak, and, and, and the, whole, the whole thing comes together. And hopefully, you know, we, we're doing the same thing for people if you have if you have a glass of a smile of fortune and you have a really good piece of dark chocolate, the, the same, the same kind of fusion of joy is happening in, in your mouth that is happening there. And you can also stick your nose in the glass time and time again, over the course of 45 minutes and see how it changes and grows and change, and, and, you know, and, and at, you know, what, what, it, what it's like when it takes on oxygen and all, all of the things that people love about, about great wine and, and really good scotch and really good bourbon and great beer. You know, how does it, how does it do that? Well, you know, that, that was important for me. And I, I, I don't know why I picked, I don't know why I picked mead as the thing that I was going to, you know, center on. Um, but I, I did. And once I got kind of like into it, it was really important for me then to to uh, just see how far we could take it. There's there's no limit to how far it can be taken. The people in wine are still trying to make better wine. The people in great beer are still trying to make great beer. You know, better better beer than they made before, and and that's kind of what our obligation is as mead makers. Mm-hmm. Mead occupies an interesting space when we're talking about alcoholic beverages, and I'm sure that's something we can get to a little later, but um, I, I like all this discussion of the interplay between wine and mead and this focus on quality of ingredients, but there's also this aspect of quality of manufacturing too when we consider alcoholic beverages. So I guess I kind of want to get your take on both of these aspects and how you kind of merge them into what you do. Well, if it's, if it's okay... I want to talk about what we do, right? We, we view, I'd rather not, other people have different approaches to how to make mead and, and it's okay for there to be other approaches. There's let a thousand flowers bloom. There's, there is, uh, there's wine with cupcakes and, and penguins on it at the store, just as well as there is outstanding, uh, $150 $150 a bottle Cabernet. Uh, so, so it's, it's not, it's not as though there's not room in the universe for all of that. Everybody can't, everybody can't have, uh, the, the finest Rhone, uh, wines because there's not enough of them for everybody. But, but, um, what I do think is that, that, uh, the, the practices that we've adopted are are targeted at maximizing you know, we're, we're, our two our two watchwords are quality and fidelity, and our our goal then is to take the best ingredients that we can get, and make sure that what you get in the glass is 
the transformation of those ingredients into the the most characteristic and true reflection i mean the the um the scotch i mean i'm going to switch to scotch right now but the scotch makers are calling the, the term that they're using the right now in scotch is expressions right and i think it's a really good phrase it, it, it's it's a it's a term that describes how you have captured and allowed the ingredients to express themselves in a glass and that's a that's a perfect perfect uh word for the situation and i i hope we can do that it, scotch makers have even more to take care of um one of the one of the things i've been using is the if, if you've heard the uh the ginger rogers line about you know uh well what's it like to dance with fred astaire and she says well i just do everything that he does only backwards and in high heels and that's what it's been like to try and run a metery during a pandemic uh is is the the and, and I, another analogy that I use is is like a great umpiring or or great movie making. If you've really done your job well, you've 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 your your impact on the event is huge, and your visibility is absolutely minimal. Your your uh, ability to uh, take tremendous resources and. If, if I may swear, get the hell out of the way, right? Um, that's that's what great uh, process is. It's your ability to disappear from the thing and just give people the thing. Um, so so our, our our practices are designed to do that. We've we've adopted a lot of winemaking practices like punch downs and and uh, pump overs on a, on occasion. Um, a lot of a lot of the stuff that we've learned from them we we do free run we we take the fruit we use real fruit all the time all fruit all real fruit and we and then when when we uh separate the the meat out from the fruit we do it with what's called a free run meaning that we don't ever take a wine press and squeeze out the last little bit of whatever because we've tasted it <laughs> And the last little bit of whatever from the blackberry isn't something that I want to go into the rest of the blackberry. <laughs> I want it to be clean. So we, you know, when you see that free run thing, what that means is we we put we put a or we use we use the bottom port on the tank and we draw off the the mead from the bottom and we run it through a, a mesh filter bag and collect up all the fruit and then let that all settle down through it, through the other tank, through a mesh screen into another tank and then pump it into the secondary tank. And that's what happens. It's, it's, um, I mean, to some extent it is fairly, I don't want to say simple because it's a heck of a lot of work, but on the other hand, it's, it's not an elaborate process and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, mess with what we're starting off with much at all. So, those processes are important. We we uh, let the wine, we let the mead talk to us. <laughs> Cliche, but we we leave it in secondary until we think it's ready to be transferred, and we've left behind as much of the sediment as we can. We leave it in tertiary until it's clear. If it's if it's not going to clear totally, you know, if we look at it in secondary and it's been in there and we've been taking little samples of it and and it's still not not really getting clear. Occasionally we'll lightly fine as lightly as we possibly can to, to try and get it to clarify. And then we transfer it to tertiary and leave it there until it is, it is uh, 
completely uh, clear, and then we, we bottle it. And what we make each year, like how big the batch of Madeline we can make is, is limited by, we've, we, found our, we found our source for boysenberries. And when, when they say how much boysenberries we can buy, then we buy them and we make that much madeline and the same thing is true right now we're, we're in the process of trying to if, if you've had the the mead that we call uh, bramble it's 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 been altered because um some years we can't get as much of this and some and he comes you know and our uh our our grower comes back to us and says but but i can get you uh some tay berries um try them they're delicious and we pilot out a quick batch of tayberry mead and we say yeah and we then we calculate out how much that will f where that will fit in the next batch of bramble and the next batch batch of bramble has tayberries in it this time because that's what we can source and and yeah absolutely um and and we've also we've also had to deal with that with respect to honey we want to buy direct from the producer um we we buy honey that's gone from the hive through the extractor into a drum and that's the drum that we take it out of when we put it into the meat uh, that's that's how we want that and that's we want that path as short as we possibly can get it and we want to know exactly who it's come from because if you know who it's come from there's a far less far smaller chance that it's got high fructose corn syrup or some other hullabaloo in it um, and you also know how that guy treats their employees or that woman treats their employees so you you can you can be you know, so we can sleep, <laughs> you know, that's nice. Um, but we, we want to, we want to do that as much as possible, but then the same thing happens wherein, um, if we have a limitation of the amount of orange blossom we can get from our guy in California, well, now we have to, and, and we taste, boy, do we, we taste a lot of honey. <laughs> we taste a lot of honey. A lot of people come to us and say, well, you buy our honey. And we say, well, let us taste it. And then sometimes we, say no and sometimes we don't call them back and <laughs> but uh but it's that's that's the deal that's um we're gonna we're gonna try and do make honey make mead with honey that we really adore you brought up some interesting sorts of criteria that you consider when you're looking at your supply chain and uh which uh, which vendors you kind of work with in a certain way. So for this keeper in California, where you're getting uh, some of your honey from the orange blossom honey, for example, how does it a relationship like that start? And over time, I wouldn't say manage what they produce, but do you have influence in some way on their production over time based on your needs? Well, that gets to a, that gets to a, uh, a concept I've been thinking about pretty extensively lately. Um, we can't do a whole lot. Part of, part of what's happening, if you're going to get orange blossom honey, your producer is going to be um, harvesting the honey after that, that orange blossom pollination. And you, the, a lot of them are, are doing this on the fly. And we, we know, for example, that um, <laughs> the guy's hives haven't been far from the, from the, uh, the extractor because we found a lot of bees in some of the drums that we've gotten uh, and that means the bees are around the extractor uh, so they're they're probably and, and they're migratory you know you guys are familiar with the whole migratory pollination practice so you're going to take your bees to the orange blossoms and when you're done with the orange blossoms it may be time to go do some apple blossoms somewhere um, or cherry it's probably gonna be more like cherry or stone fruits that are in in uh in that area at that time of year and and the person who you're going to 
you know, who's going to pay you to pollinate their cherries wants to know for sure that your bees are going to be working on their cherries. So they want you to show up with essentially empty hives, which means you're going to pull off all the orange blossom and, and, and extract it. And, and now you want to send it off to whoever. And that, that creates, that creates a challenge for mead makers because sometimes the, whoever turns out to be Dutch gold or Subi, and that's because they can afford to buy a truckload or two truckloads of, of drums at one time, as opposed to having the beekeeper uh, ship them to himself and then wait for us to buy them from him. That's not their most, con that's, we're not their most convenient customer. Um, and we're not the easiest way for them to generate cash flow. So the people that we, you know, we have to, we have to um, be really grateful <laughs> to them. And, and we try and share mead with them and we try and do things that, that uh, show them how much we appreciate what they do. So in Italy, in Italy, there are, there are produtories. And what happened in Italy was that um, originally there were, there were uh, grape growers over here and they grew grapes and they sold them to winemakers. And the winemakers took the grapes and they did the value add. And the value add was really spectacular, right? The, the, the grapes went from being worth, you know, pennies or dollars a pound to, to being worth, you know, in some instances, 40 and 50 and $60 a bottle. That's a tremendous value add. And, and the, the, the real work, the dirt under the fingernails does not happen in the winery. It happens in the vineyard. So, uh, twice in the history of Barbaresco, once, once it was, uh, once it was just a, a really, um, progressive winemaker who said, look, here's the deal. He said to nine of his growers, I'm going to set up the winemaking process and you're going to be part owners. We're going to call this a produtori. Actually, it wasn't even at the time it was called a cantina. And, and we're going to, we're going to set this thing up and we're going to take the grapes. And when I make the wine, we'll sell it and you'll all share in the profits. And that was spectacular. That went on for years and really only got screwed up by World War One, um, And it, it really helped out. And those nine growers went from being just sort of poor dirt farmers making grapes to, to people who actually made a, a pretty good living. Well, after World War II and in, in, in the early 1950s, the, uh, the, the Catholic priest in Barbaresco, one of the Catholic priests in Barbaresco, looked up and he said, you know what? We got to do this again because you guys are once again just getting the short end of the stick. You're doing all the work and you're not benefiting. So at that point, he created this thing called the Produtori del Barbaresco. And they actually put, they actually put, put the fermentation system, they put the fermentation facility in the church <laughs> and, and created this whole thing that said, all right, you bring the grapes in, you're a part owner. I'll ferment them up. We'll make sure that they're really high quality. Uh, the wine's really high quality. And then, and then you, you can benefit. And what that created was a two-way quality pressure, right? It created, if, if, the, if the grape growers are, are making the best grapes that they can make and bringing it to the winemaker, they're hoping that that winemaker will do the best job he can possibly do to deliver up a great wine. And on the other hand, the winemaker is looking at the grape growers going, you guys got to make me the best grapes you can possibly bring me. And then I can make 
and, and you know those the, the wines from Barolo and Barbaresco they're not cheap now you know they're they're starting to get up into the well maybe I can't afford to have one of those on a Tuesday night price range and and um uh, that's fine right that's great because that means that those grape growers are finally going from being essentially dirt poor people and man they were you know we're talking about old fashioned old world farmer cow sleeps in the house poor right and and when 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 they put this whole thing together now there's pressure from the producers to have the winemaker make the best stuff and pressure from the winemakers to have the grape growers bring them the best stuff that they can if we do the same thing in mead because right now those there's a lot there's a lot of beekeepers excuse me <clears throat> there's a lot of beekeepers that are <clears throat> that are not getting outstanding prices for their honey right they're 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 not really I mean, they're doing pretty well. Some of them are doing pretty well, but the, the the value add that's happening when me and everybody else that's making meat out of their product takes it from being, you know, the two or four dollar a pound honey and sells it as a, you know, twenty five dollar a bottle bottle of mead. That's that, that's huge, and if we can if we can figure out a way to then have those beekeepers start taking the same approach of adopting beekeeping practices that will maximize the quality of the honey in the bottle. Now, now we've got a two way thing going on that could push the quality of mead up pretty substantially. And if you, I mean, I just bought a case of Produtori del Barbaresco Barbaresco because it's freaking delicious. And, and if we can get the same thing going on with, with the mead world, um, that could that could be a revolutionary uh, development, and and I I believe it could be the kind of thing that that uh, spurs new heights. The model you're talking about, the produttori, reminds me a little bit in some ways of a co-op model, and we've experienced some limitations to uh, co-op models insofar as the issues arising from pushing production so that there's more grapes and therefore more in the market and more cash flow coming in potentially. Uh, can you tell me how we can flip that in this model and how it may look for you as a, as a mead maker? Well, I think, I think the important part of it is, is going to come from the screening process the screening process in the in the the two produtories that i'm most familiar there's one in carema and there's one in barbaresco i think there are a few others but but the screening process of the of the mead maker or the winemaker saying look th this isn't good enough for the produtory that's that's where um you know we we avoid the challenge of having there be kind of that co-op thing that you talked about where you know, everybody's, everybody's chipping in and, and, and if, if you show up on this day, the, you know, the whatever that you get may not be as good as what you want. Well, in, in the instance of, of co-ops that are involved in production of wine, uh, you know, you have that, you have that screening moment. You have that uh, table sort that says, no, nah, no, nah, no, nah, nah, sorry. And, and if you don't get to, and, and there has to be an agreement of everybody involved that, that if, if you don't pass muster this year, you, you're, you're not part of the team. And that, that, that's the, that's the function that's, 
I mean, and that's a little, I'm sure it is a little uh, uncomfortable at some points, but it, it's really important. I think another important aspect too, when we talk about creating some sort of protatory around mead, bees carry a very significant um, environmental impact, we could say, um, to the world. And so if we were to enable beekeepers to develop better practices that are more sustainable through this kind of protatory, the impact that it has on a global scale is very, very large. And I guess I kind of want your take on how important you see bees and meat making towards um, keeping a healthy and sustainable environment and, you know, moving forward with the practice. Yeah. And I think, I think I, I hate to be so Eurocentric, but in general, and, and kind of wine centric as well, but in general, Europe and wine have done a lot to push things in the direction where the top of the quality chain overlaps with biodynamic and really low impact production. So when you look at the, some of the best producers in Burgundy and some of the best producers in, in uh, Italy, they, they've, they've moved to uh, models where they are minimizing the number of asides. That's, that's one of the phrases I've heard lately is, is you know, the asides are pesticides and fungicides and herbicides and, and, uh, and they, they share in common the same aside as uh, homicide and suicide. And those are not asides that are uh, all that cool. You know, they're centered around killing things as opposed to uh, the creation of a living, uh, sustainable and, and thriving uh, ecosystem. So I think there is a possibility that if we, if we work with that kind of a model, that is one of the things that Frank is really keen on because we, we have a, a lot to, to look at in terms of how we make mead and how we package mead and how we sell mead that, that can be done more or, or with less impact on, on our planet. When we talk about having less of a footprint in our manufacturing practices, mead is definitely one of the alcohols where there is a much more minimal footprint uh, being left behind. So I guess for me, I kind of want to dive into your decision to open up the orchard and what, were there any environmental considerations that went into that? It's, it's, uh, it's very fortunate that, that um, the, the impact of what we're doing has multiple benefits, but, but really, uh, yeah, we, we wanted to, we wanted to find ways to, uh, minimize the carbon footprint of our meat. And, and if that means that we can produce the, the fruit that's being used in our meat far closer to the actual fermentation vessel, than we have in the past and so much of the fruit that we're using right now is produced in oregon and it is it is uh it is not lost on me that that's that's a big environmental cost um, there are two ways that we could approach it and we you know we don't we can't do everything all at once but our two thoughts are that we can we can produce the fruit more closely to its fermentation location or we could potentially open a fermentation location out in Oregon 
which would uh, allow us to produce fruit or probably to produce mead closer to the fruit producers in Oregon that are supplying us with stuff. And some of the things that we want to continue doing, for example, uh, Madeline, which is done uh, with boysenberries. Boysenberries, we're, we're gonna try and grow them in Michigan. We'll see what happens, but it's a different zone. It's a di uh, Oregon is a different growing region. Uh, it's a different USDA zone than, than uh, Rochester Hills, Michigan. And, and it's also, it's also a different set of conditions in terms of quality. And that's, I mean, the quality is, is still massively important to us. So we're, we're gonna, we're gonna examine how, how that may happen. We, we, we can't, we can't um, bet the whole farm and just say, yeah, we're going to open a fermentation facility in, in, uh, in Oregon in, in a year. Um, but on the other hand, um, we, we do know that uh, the real the real success in creating a business with the kind of longevity that you see out of Vian Steffen and and some of the wineries out there that have been around for hundreds of years it comes from from looking at what has to happen and making long-term plans and then and then executing those long-term plans for our listeners that may not have been to the orchard, can you kind of walk us through what someone may find on the orchard, what you've chosen to grow there and what it sort of looks like? Sure, sure. Do you mind if I share my screen then? So this is this is uh, Schramm's Orchards. That's, a, that's the Google Maps satellite view. Um, it's a 6.1 acre, acre orchard and it's, it's, it's located in a, in a, residential section of, of Rochester Hills, Michigan. Our, our goal is to maximize the productivity of that piece of property. It's oriented north and south. It's about 250 feet across on, that, on the front edge and the back edge, and it's about 1,200 feet deep. Um, if, if you look at the current, current uh, layout of it, there's a circle at the, at the top center of the, of the orchard. And, that circle was used by the previous owner who was a landscaper to sell plants that, that they were uh, marketing for, for both people to buy and take home and also as a show place for them to um, show off what you could put in if they landscaped your property for you. And uh, so, so we're, we're trying to work to get that uh, planted in and, and it's, it's covered in gravel right now. A portion of that will be covered with a pole barn that we're going to have to put in because if we're going to be doing things like like pressing apples into cider and and uh, pitting cherries, we're going to have to have a, a small agricultural processing location on on site. Just south of that is some is some uh, some grass, and on on the what would be your left or or the west side of the property, that's that's a, a whole set of berries from just south of the circle running along that property line. And, and then immediately south of, uh, you know, I'll even use my, I'll even use my, my cursor here. <clears throat> there are some, there are some uh, Charbake cherries in here, in this area. Um, and then this area here is all berries. And this area here is all berries and currants. There are black currants right up here. There aren't, the, the rows of those aren't very apparent to see but there are a few that are starting to show up pretty well from, from space. Uh, and th these are all rows of berries. 
this is this this area here is waiting to be planted with sharbake cherries uh, this area and this entire area will be filled in with sharbakes we've put in we've put in sharbakes now in three places on the property there are seven of them here there are uh two of them over here and there are three of them down here and we did that to find out if there are specific areas in the property that we're going to that have you know the soil type in any piece of property varies can vary from foot to foot and if there were specific areas where things were going to grow well or not grow um, we were we were concerned about that part of the reason that we're concerned about that is over here um, some of these trees on this edge of the property are black walnuts and there's a thing called black walnut allelopathy that can affect whether or not other plants can compete with a chemical that's produced by the black walnuts and can can thrive um, so that's why we tried them out over here some of the trees we planted back here uh, didn't thrive so we're worried about that this area back here which and you can see there are some some what appear to be vertical stripes there that's a, that is a uh, a grape uh, small grape vineyard that Dave Anderson and I have planted. Uh, I, I helped plant it. Dave did all of the trellising. He did a spectacular job putting in a, a set of, of trellises here so that the, the grapes have a, uh, a structure to grow on. And we're, we're growing uh, Riesling and we're growing some Gewurztraminer because those are two classic varieties that grow well in, in Michigan. And, and they also make spectacular piment. <laughs> so we're going to try and be able to make a uh, make that work and part of the reason for that is this area if you look this was a landscaping operation and so there was there was a a, a dirt sorting location back here there were a bunch of there are still bins back in the back which we use for topsoil and compost and various other stuff and 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 there were trucks that came in and out and brought topsoil in and got got piled up here and sifted and then there were there were also uh, trucks moving around back here to drop off and pick up uh, loads of, uh, of, of uh, gravel and topsoil. And, and this got fairly compacted. There's a lot of gravel in there right now. They, they put gravel in there so that the semis wouldn't get stuck. And that meant we had to find something that would grow in a very gravelly compacted area. And that's why the, that's the con where the conclusion, the white, well, what are we going to plant back there? Because this is, it was, <laughs> we had, it was rugged trying to get the stuff in there. And we, we looked for something that would work back there and grapes came to mind because grapes are one of the things that can grow in extremely rocky soils. And so that's what we put in. And so far, they're doing really well. Um, this back here is the actual uh, uh, apple. And, and also there's some, some we planted some uh, peri pears back there. And we planted a few plums, a couple of varieties that we, we really like. Santa Rosa, which everyone really understands, but also one called Purple Heart, which is one of the most spectacularly flavored plums. It's a Japanese plum. Um, it is, it is tr truly divine. It, 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 there are some things in life, like when you, when you bite a Gravenstein apple, right? When you grab, bite a Gravenstein apple, it's like quintessential apple. <laughs> it, 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 as soon as you bite into it, it's like, well, this is exactly what I think of when I think about apples. Well, um, purple heart plum is that way with purple plums. The first time you eat one that's just come right off the tree and is still warm and is so juicy that it like runs down your elbow <laughs> uh, when you bite into it, 
it, it's it's just it's 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 a heavenly experience. It 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 can't be duplicated. And I, I used to I had a tree of them in my backyard, and and when I was mowing the lawn, I would I would just pick two and. Each time I went by the tree, I would pick two, shine them up on my shirt and eat them. And then I would come back with the lawnmower, pick another two. I'd ended up eating a dozen of these things before I got done mowing the lawn, um, which made for an interesting night. But anyways, uh, the, uh, the point is we're trying, to, we're trying to grow a lot of different fruit back here. Uh, we've got a few Danube cherries. We've got, right now, I think there are, I think there are seven or eight cherry varieties growing on the property. There are... Right now, I, I'm pretty sure there are at least 35 apple varieties growing on the property, and we have 40 more in in the greenhouse waiting to come out. So we'll end up with at least 70 uh, apple varieties. You know, I I know them all. I've tasted them all. They're they're delicious. There's a couple I, I a couple of new ones in there that I've taken a shot at that I've never had before. Never had Redfield, and we're gonna grow that one. It's a really cool red apple. But but um, I I know what they are. I know what they contribute to the cider blend, and and we've we've targeted uh, the apples to do that. Hopefully the cherries will fill in this area. These are two greenhouses. This greenhouse is used primarily right now for for storage of agricultural supplies. That's where we keep the tractor. That's where we keep the the gale loader and, and other stuff. This greenhouse here, this white greenhouse, is 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 full of plants. Um, and, and you've got pictures of, of them. That's where the, the uh, grafting occurs every spring. Uh, right now we're waiting on the, on the grafts that we did uh, in, in, in February to pop out and hopefully, and they are, they are starting to pop out. We'll find out if they, if they keep it up, um, that, that, uh, that will be the, right now, there are more, more Charbakes in that greenhouse right now than there are on the, uh, currently on the property. There are hopefully more than 300 just spectacular this is these are these are uh, storage containers and we just use those for all kinds of gardening supplies there's there's got to be a place to put the you know the, the, the lawnmower and all the irrigation tubing and blah 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 these are these are concrete pads they were used by the previous uh, owner to, to, to house uh, gravel that, that he used on his jobs and then we're, our decision is do we want to put greenhouses on there or do we want to go ahead and, and get get rid of them? and plant them or you know what how, how are we going to deal with that that's that space when you've only got six acres you you really want to maximize the amount of production that's coming out of this so we've talked about potentially putting things in there like like uh strawberries or or uh or other other, other stuff and then this area right here this is this this is another utility shed and and uh right i mean there are still some more some more currents below there but we're going to put we're going to put a a, a storage freezer there um, behind that um, beneath or, behind, or adjacent to that and then there's also going to be this area up here will be uh, where the where our uh, pole barn is going to go and uh, we're looking forward to having that that's we need we need a lot of the <laughs> we need storage we need um, a place for the, the for the fruit processing we also we also need just facilities because there's a lot of people working out here and we want them to be able to you know shower or use the restroom and get cleaned up before they at the start of the end of their shifts our, our goal with this whole thing has has been to to see what we can do 
to, to learn about the best fruit varieties that can be grown for mead making and what the production processes are. Because that's information that's going to help shrams, but it's also going to help the whole industry. You know, if we can say, look, here's how you grow these cherries, here's how you prune them, here's how, here's the kind of, uh, you know, pest control that you've got to execute, here's whether or not they can have to be done conventionally or can be done biodynamically or, or organically. If, if we can use this as a research project just to also say, you know, here's, here's the, here's the fruit varieties that we've grown and, and here are the ones that taste the best in meat. Like I said, the, the wine world's had 2000 years to figure out that, you know, Merlot grows really well on the, on the left bank in Bordeaux, you know, or on the right bank, excuse me, in Bordeaux. And, and, um, that Pinot Noir grows really, uh, Pinot Noir came from Burgundy, but all of that stuff's been, you know, nailed down and, and in mead making, it's all, it's all untouched palate right now. We can, we can do whatever we want with it, but we, we do need to know what we're dealing with and what works and why. It's uh, very fortunate for the Belgian producers that you'll soon be able to provide them with the Charbeck cherries that they've been missing for <laughs> since World War II. They're trying to they're trying to do the same thing themselves. I mean, I think the uh, the Island Bosch family and the Vanois um, they're they're out there trying to trying to get things going themselves. But if we can figure out how to, you know, yeah. I think there are some American producers that might be interested in getting their hands on a, on a Charvet <laughs> cherry if they could too. And it would be, it would be nice to be able to, to provide that. And it, you're talking about a few years on down the road, but, but they are phenomenal. I mean, the one thing I will say is I have tasted probably, I don't know, 15, 20 different varieties of, of sour cherries and Charvet blows them all away. It's, it's head and shoulders better than any other variety I've ever tasted, including Lutovkas and Oblashinskas and Pozogs and all just dozens of other things. There, there's, there's a lot of people who want to be as good as a Charbeck. I mean, it is the Mercedes. It's as good as a Mercedes. Well, no, you still call it a Mercedes. So I want a Mercedes, <laughs> you know, that's the Charbeck is, is that, is that cherry. Absolutely. And for listeners, just as a heads up, uh, if you check the episode notes that we have on the website, we'll share some screenshots of this harvest and also some great photos that Ken's provided of activity on the orchard. So you'll be able to visualize some of the some of the things that uh, that Ken described. So to tie a little bit of a bow on our conversation about uh, about agriculture here, one of the photos you provided for us that was very interesting was about the 2012 cherry harvest and the kind of impact that that potentially had or did have on your first batch of Heart of Darkness. Can you sort of tell us a little bit about what happened in 2012 and what you kind of learned from that experience and how, what you've done moving forward? Yeah, yeah, I can. In, in 2012, uh, the, the, the cherry industry in Michigan suffered one of the worst losses. Well, as far as I know, the worst loss ever in, in uh, recorded Michigan cherry farming. Uh, we got, we got uh, in, in the month of February and, and in early March, uh, we got temperatures into the 80s. And in fact, in the last two weeks in February, 
we got we got eight days of temperatures over 80 degrees, which was just ridiculous. Dude, that never happens. It just it's, it's I mean, it is it, it's climate change. Right. And and uh, it was it was a shift in in the in the polar uh, patterns. And we ended up with so much heat that the trees just cranked right on up. And and as a result, they were they were so far developed that that year, April 20th, we got a frost and we got it. We got a hard frost, meaning down down below uh, 28 degrees. And uh, I, I went out and planted uh, and and uh, not planted and started fires underneath all of my cherry trees. I did the quote unquote smudge pot thing. I I bought a bunch of Smoky Joes and 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 I hauled out everything that I could, you know, old ice ice buckets and everything I could find find that I could put charcoal and and wood into and start a fire. And I I burned I burned that night. And uh, you know, I burned every night that, I mean, I burned twice that year. I burned then, and I think I burned again on March. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, April 20th and May 4th, I had, I had to burn. And I did. Uh, it was, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, but whatever. And uh, I got cherries. I, 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 I got cherries. On May 7th, uh, I, I, took, I took a picture of of the fruit and i think you guys have got that picture and it's it's it was one of the most satisfying things ever i think it may actually be it was either batch one or batch two i had some fruit in the freezer but it was one of the first two batches of of heart of darkness that were released we were we released two batches of the heart of darkness in the first year of the meadery they were they were critical to our cash flow you know, without that cash flow, we, we might not have survived. We, we had a hard time. We had a hard time with lots of other issues, TTB issues that and, and, and federal government issues almost that had nothing to do with the TTB because um, there was a thing called a sequester back then. But we, we were up against a bunch of challenges. That frost was one of them. And fortunately, we we survived that frost and 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 that fruit made it. And it was a really it was a really outstanding uh, batch of HOD that, that resulted from it. And, and it was also remarkable because I, I mean, I have a lot of friends in the cherry industry and they lost everything that year. You alluded to kind of some issues with the TTB and I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about how, about TTB classification. I found a interesting and somewhat confusing presentation from MeadCon uh, that was about 80 slides about how you can label your mead and what you can and can't do. And um, I established about halfway through that I didn't have the patience to make mead because I wouldn't never know how to label it. But uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the, if you can break down the classification pretty quickly and if the classifications restrict producers in some way. Sure, sure. They do. They, they restrict us in a number of ways. And, and I think part of the problem is, I mean, I, I have sympathy for the people at the TTB. It's hard, it's hard to know about you know, comprehensively about beer, right? And, and if you're in the TTB, yeah, you, you've got an area that you've got to, uh, to govern, but I don't, I don't know how I would keep up with everything that has to be known about what, what's permitted in beer labeling and, and what's permitted in wine labeling and what's permitted in mead labeling. 
and for that matter, what mead is. I, I mean, mead has some, some awareness issues and some of them are at the TTB. Um, there are a lot of people at the, at the TTB that I don't think have, have uh, had much mead or have thought about it much or, or read about it much. Um, and I, I mean, it's, so it's frustrating for me because I've, I mean, I've read about it a lot and, and I, I pretty much know what is mead and what isn't mead historically um, and, and also within the context of what, what mead makers are doing. Really, it's a little frustrating for me because beer, beer for example, is, is the, the best parallel in terms of the amount of variety and flexibility that's, that is uh, granted. No one says anything about whether or not, you know, if you make a cherry beer, it's just, they'll just let you call it a cherry beer. Um, but if you make cherry mead, um, there are, there are hoops you have to jump through and there are, um, issues you've got to uh, deal with that, that shouldn't really be there. I mean, they, they just shouldn't be there. If, if you can call a cherry, you know, if you can make beer with hundreds of different adjuncts and just stick that wherever you want on your label, it should, it, the same, the same degree of flexibility and, and sort of diplomacy should be granted to, to mead, but it's not yet. And I think some of that just has to do with with the the, un, the lack of awareness, and 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 the lack of awareness has created the, the. Let me back up a second here. The the definition of mead in in uh, the TTB's code of federal regulations is based on stuff that was written 60, 70 years ago by people who were making what would now be called traditional mead and, and was essentially just honey and, and water. And I think there was even some, and they had a thing in there about hops. And I think there's a story that says that the, the hops that the original person was dealing with was actually Gesho and they were making Tej. But, um, and that makes sense because, you know, Ethiopians with their tremendous history of of mead making would want to do that here in the United States. And if they had to figure out a way to get the uh, TT, I, I mean, I've, I have huge sympathy for whoever had to deal with that because <laughs> they were trying to make the TTB understand. Okay. Here's, and, and that's, that's where the term honey, I mean, the term honey wine is in the code of federal regulations because someone said, what, what's mead? And I'm sure someone said, well, it, it's um, honey wine <laughs> just to get them to understand what we were actually dealing with here. If they had had if they had had a person in the TTB who was dedicated to understanding historical fermented beverage styles, they would have been able to get that worked out, and they could have just gone to that person and said, "Is is what is mead?" And they would have said, "Well, it's this." Um, but but they I don't think they did. And whoever was responsible for writing into into law what's there um, went ahead and wrote it in as honey wine and wrote it in as something that didn't contain anything else historically not accurate at all. I mean, if you look back, the first, the first mead we know of is 7,000 years old and it had, it had hawthorn berries and rice and, and you know, all kinds of other stuff in it along with honey. So, so the, uh, and, and from, from 7,000 BC, 9,000 years ago to now, people have been putting all kinds of different things in their, in their fermented honey products. Um, and really the thing that we want to say is that the, the TTB should designate it as, as the product that, that has, that comes primarily with its primary uh, fermentable sugar is honey. 
because that's kind of been the, the defining characteristic throughout history. Um, TTB doesn't really understand that, doesn't really understand um, that, I'm a classic example. You, you can, you can um, create a mead and submit your recipe and it's submitted by volume, right? So it can appear that there's 50 or more percent of the volume coming from blackberries or cherries and only 25 or 30 percent of the volume coming from honey. Well, then isn't that really a cherry wine with honey added? Well, no, because honey is 81 percent sugar and 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 18 percent water. The fruit that you're putting in is 12 percent sugar and 80 percent water. So, you know, basing it on on volume is inaccurate when in reality, if you look at the total dissolved solids, which is, you know, it's kind of what, what beer makers and, and wine makers are looking at, the dissolved solids are coming from that honey. A lot of, you know, the lion's share of it, just a huge percentage of it. If you do the math, when you get all said and done, it's like, oh, it was, it was 56% fruit by volume, but it's 71% sugar from honey. So we, we need to, we need to work with the TTB to get them to, to adjust their, their mentality about this. It's, it's not an easy process. I, I, I mean, I don't expect that any of them are sitting around thinking, boy, I really hope that those guys from the meat industry show up tonight and explain this whole meat thing to me. Um, on the other hand, it, it is, it is constricting an entire industry to be giving us a hassle about calling our cherry meat a cherry meat. It's a cherry meat. That's exactly what it is. And to, to call it anything else or to, to put any other descriptions on it is would be misleading the consumer. And that's what I think their game is about, is to make sure that we don't mislead the consumer. The other thing that I think is a problem is that um, right now there's a restriction that says you can't make braggots in a winery. If, you're, if, you're a, uh, if you make mead, you're, qual you're classified as a winery. And you can't have grain in a winery. It's, it's just a law. It's how some, somebody decided that we were going to divide things up because there are a lot of people who like to divide things up. Um, but the drag for that is, I mean, Braggot is one of the most delicious styles and some of the best Braggot makers in the world have their hands tied behind their back or they either, you know, they either have their hands tied behind their back and can't do it or they have to go out and figure out how to license themselves as both a brewery and a winery and to have the facilities and, and, Part of the hassle in that is that the actual administrative paperwork to doing all of that, getting all the licensing taken care of, filing all your compliance forms, doing all of the stuff, you know, that's all time you don't spend making any money. Um, you're, you're not making money by doing compliance. You're co doing compliance. And, and it's, it is an undue burden for my money on the meat industry to say, well, the only way you can make a braggot is if you leap through all of these hoops and do all of this other stuff. And no, just, just let the meteries make braggots. It, it would be it would be a very it would be a very wise and business promoting, you know, for for the for the folks who are big on. Well, is government working to help business or hurt business? Well, it would help business a lot if meteries could could make braggots. That would help me out a lot. And I, I think it would help out, I think it would help out the beer consuming public too, because I mean, ultimately I'm, I'm not getting rich. 
I mean, I'm out there trying to put great tastes on people's palates. That's what I'm doing. I'm trying to make a few jobs and give people something really, really good to drink. And I can't give anybody a braggart right now. It's unfortunate. And there's not a lot of breweries that are interested in making braggarts at the same time. I think Scratch from Southern Illinois were the only ones that I tasted a braggart from in the last five years or so. Oh, there's some really good ones. I mean, uh, Mike Fall at at, uh, at Rabbit's Foot, and he, he set up a cidery and he set up a brewery so that he could do it. You know, it's, it's unfortunate though, Mike. I mean, Mike's a great guy. He's 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 one of the funniest and most entertaining and 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 also one of the, I mean he's gifted man he's just really gifted to tell him in order to do this you've got to leap through this hoop hoop and then go over there and run around that way and please just let the man make his bracket it's great it's he makes he makes a stout bracket that's just terrific and another another observation I made had to do with uh, vintage statements and age statements in mead. And one of the things that we've made a fuss about in the beer community has been freshness and age within that. And that's a huge, I mean, that's a big consumer uh, awareness point as well of the last three or four years. And so do you feel as though that impacts uh, you as a producer of artisanal beverages? Um, we, we can put age, you know, we can put... Uh, produced on dates on stuff and people can use that and and really you know when it, when we're making meads most of which are going to be better in 10 years than they are when you buy them that's not much of a big deal um one thing i will say is that the wine industry got the right to do vintage dating through a lot of hard work right it was that that is something that there the, the, to do vintage dating and appellations, right? Which are things that we can't do right now. There are some label restrictions with respect to what we're allowed to say. Um, but it is legitimate that the federal government wants to be able to assure consumers that if you buy a Napa Cabernet, that what's in there is Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa. And that's, you know, especially if somebody's asking you for $165 for that bottle, you should know that yes, indeed, I'm getting exactly what I'm paying for. So that's what the whole appellation and vintage dating thing was was based on was setting up a system of verifying all of that information. And and it's kind of incumbent on the meat industry. What the, what the TTB has said to us is it's incumbent on the meat industry then to come up with its own system. The the AVA thing, the American Viticultural Association, you know, the appellation thing. The the wine industry had to had to come up with that. They had to prove to the TTB that what they were asking for was going to benefit the consumer. It was going to be accurate. It was going to be re reliable, verifiable. It was it was, you know, there was there was a way for it to to be proven. Um, and some of that's honor system, you know, to some extent. But there's got to be a little bit, at least a little bit of muscle behind that honor system. And and the the, the meat industry is. To some extent, the meat industry is too small right now to to put all that together. I mean, it was it, it takes it takes some some real doing to to do to to put that stuff together. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, machinations that have to get taken care of, and you know it's 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 okay. And I I, I hate to sound side with the TTB, but it's okay for them to insist that there be a verifiable way to. To, to make sure that that data is not just, uh, you know, yanked out of the wrong orifice, so to speak. 
Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about stewardship and awareness uh, while we're on this topic. What awareness campaigns do exist uh, to publicize some of the sorts of issues or the things that we've talked about? And we're at a little bit of a moment right now uh, when I tend to look at things through like a beer-centric lens, I see a small thing like in Untapped, many of the top 20 breweries in the world are actually mead producers at this point. Say what we want about the weighting and how that's actually decided. The fact is that if you or I were both to go there, that's what we would see, and that would inform our perception in some way. So what uh, what are some of the things that the mead industry can take from that in its efforts for awareness and stewardship? Well, it's, it's, it's good, I, I think. That, that there is that much information out there on untapped about meteries. And I think, I think um, that it is, it is in a lot of ways legitimate that the meteries are creating things that people are finding uh, you know, objectively delicious. That, that's great. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's an aspect of the meat industry that's, that's very admirable right now. Um, there is still a tremendous amount of awareness that is that is yet to be captured. Um, if if you if I and I do I, I I'm not so much during the pandemic but before the pandemic, I, I take the temperature of the of the world by by talking to people on airplanes when I'm going to places to talk, and I I did a lot more of that prior to the to the pandemic. But uh, when I first started. It was O for everybody. Um, well, I'm going to I'm going to a conference to speak about making mead because I wrote a book about making mead, and and they said, what you make meat? No, I, I make mead, and and it, it has shifted, and at at the end I I found I was I was getting close to about three or four in ten people. If I said I wrote a book about how to make mead. You say, oh, really? I, I, I kind of, I, I, I've heard, of, I've, I've heard about that I, I, a couple of times. <laughs> I've had somebody say, "You make mead? I love mead," um, and and that that's really satisfying. But but there is, you know, then there's the other, then there's the other seven out of ten, and those those seven out of ten people have to know what our product is and know why it's, you know, why it's worth drinking, and, and especially if it costs as much as ours does, <laughs> they have to know why it's worth buying. So, so the, the untapped thing helps with the people who, you know, similarly, I think if I, if I said I work for untapped, I would probably also be in that same, that same 50 or 60% what's untapped. Um, because I think there are a lot of people who, who uh, are, are consumers who don't know about that. Um, on the other hand, I, I think 100% of consumers know what wine is, and I think a hundred percent of consumers know what beer is, and can you know they can name a few wines that they like, and can name a few beers that they like. Same thing with, with uh, liquor, bourbon, whiskey, vodka. There's there's no lack of awareness uh, for those other beverages in the same sense that there is for mead, and to some extent hard cider as well. Um, mead is, but mead is, you know, it's it's facing the most uphill battle, and I think that there's there is, and it's very important for everybody in the meat industry to understand that the the 
the awareness battle that we have to fight has to be fought by everybody. Everybody has to pick up the heaviest sword they can and do as much swinging as they possibly can. Because if we leave it to the old guard to, to accomplish that, then, then it's going to be, it's going to be tough for us to get to that last seven out of 10 people. But the other thing is though, we, we, I mean, it's, it's really important that we make a great product. It's really important that if, if somebody like Eric Asimov from the New York times or, or James Suckling gets a crack at tasting some mead that when they taste it, they want to talk about it. They, they want to share that information with the world. Um, so it's, it's, it's both important that we, you know, marshal as much effort at, at getting people's attention as we can, but it's equally important that we, uh, we deliver up to them a product that is compelling and delightful and, you know, it, it's conversation worthy. I was going to say, we're almost, we, it feels like we're at an inflection point at a certain, uh, in a way, and this uh, recognition from the untapped community, while it is a little bit of a vacuum in a certain way, is actually a really, really positive thing. And we're seeing a lot of carryover from people that like these bigger beers and that like these things that have big, strong, assertive characteristics jumping into mead, which is which is fantastic. And we're seeing a lot of people uh, jump in that uh, are producing meads that resemble those in a certain point that go beyond just the fruit flavor and the fruit flavor, which is something that you focus on. And there's also uh, an effort to capture, like you had alluded to much earlier, this, uh, I would call it like CPG-esque uh, characteristic of creating something that is memorable, but in a different way, right? You're creating something right. that's memorable because you right. may remember something specific about experiencing this great fruit. Sam and I talk about our experiences with strawberries that we've had when we've gone on trips and tried this amazing fruit. And there's also people that are connected via memory to consumer packaged goods in a way. And so there's a lot of people that are coming in, coming at this from a number of different angles. And I kind of wanted to get your feel on whether this is actually the moment when there's a lot of people that are in it and it's uh, tied to memory in such a strong way and all these different, in all these different ways. I, I think, I think there is, I think what is, what is a magnificent thing for me right now is that there is a, there's a tremendous focus in, in, in a lot of American culture on what, what you know, what you're talking about, this you know, these these really incredible sensory experiences, and there's also there's there's there are huge unserved publics out there. There are people who, you know, my my husband or my wife uh, loves these eighty five IBU double India pale ales, and I just don't like that. And by the same token, my 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 uh wife loves loves these dry chardonnays and i just i that just does nothing for me you know or or dry sauvignon blancs and and you know he or she drinks them all the time but i that that does, doesn't float my boat i'm looking for something that tastes more like real fruit well <laughs> i got something for you try this 
Uh, I, I think there is, and, and, and it can be, it should be genuinely memorable. It should be compelling and thought provoking and conversation provoking and blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I mean, the, the other magnificent thing about mead is I, mean, I, I call it the golden age of mead because we can, we can, I mean, right now, as much as I don't like the carbon footprint of it, we can get access to anything. And one of our best meads, two of our best meads have a pretty significant carbon footprint. You know, our Heather, Heather honey mead and our leatherwood mead from Tasmania um, uh, I, I, I wish those honeys were made really close to me because <laughs> they're magnificent. And, and I, I, I do want to make a, a really delicious, uh, character filled typistic, uh, leatherwood mead that someone can drink and say that, Oh, this is what leatherwood tastes like when you make it into a mead. And, and th the opportunity to do that right now is better than it has ever been in history. The same thing about, you know, the, the opportunity to, to buy the best fruits that we can get to buy these magnificent honeys. It's never, you know, meat makers have never had this kind of opportunity before. Um, and, and I, I, I really think, you know, the fact that the, the fact that the, the general public hasn't quite latched onto this yet, you could say, Oh, you know, you're, well, you're just ahead of your time, but, uh, the, no, man, we're right here in the middle of it. We're right here in the middle of the best time ever. So drink up, folks, man. You're in the middle of the best time ever. In, in 10,000 years worth of humans making mead, you are at the tip of the, the sword. I mean, it is, it, it's going to get better. Yes, I will agree. On the other hand, the meads that we're making now, they're going to be better in 10 years too. <laughs> so, so, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, when's the best time to plant a fruit tree 10 years ago? Well, when's the best time to buy a bottle of mead 10 years ago? <laughs> and you're, you're, it's, it's 10 years ago right now. Excellent. What is the mead Institute? What is the mead Institute? The mead Institute is, f is five people from the world of mead who are trying very hard to help create the kinds of standardized language right now, mostly standardized language, also eventually some standardized practices that need to be, um, that need to be available in the world of mead, because there are a lot of people out there, um, right now it, it, for mead to uh, overcome this awareness situation that we were talking about before people have to be able to talk about mead and, and use terms that are easy to understand that are, that are correct, that are accurate, expressive, um, and that, and that help the public understand what, what are you going to get? If you, if you open this bottle of mead and pour it in a glass, what are you going to get? That's been around in beer and wine for a long, long time. Um, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, the, the, the number of there, are, there are dozens of magazines out there that, that are uh, devoted to doing this, to help people understand what, what, what's this, what's this wine like? What's this wine like? What's this wine like? And, and to help you understand, you know, you're going to build a profile for yourself. You like wines that are like this and you should buy them. Same thing with beers. I like, I like, you know, really hoppy Northern German, uh, Pilsners. And I like, uh, IPAs and double IPAs. That's my style. Or I like barrel aged stouts, or I like this or that or the other. And, 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 um, the Cicerone program's done a tremendous job to, to help people with that, with beer, um, as has, as has Michael Jackson and, you know, uh, Randy Mosher and a whole bunch of other people. Um, we need, we need that for mead. We need there to be standardized language. We, we also need there to be some, probably some standardized protocols for 
how meat is handled and probably some standardized protocols for for how how uh, future mead makers are, are taught how to make mead. Uh, that, that kind of stuff, a standardized curriculum would be really wonderful. And, and that's what we're getting started on. Um, there, there are some things that the AMMA is doing that, that are valuable. Uh, these are some other things. These are some other things that we think that the uh, the mead industry and and the beverage alcohol world needs to help people have a better understanding of this product. And and so what, what we've done is uh, we've been working on is a tasting protocol uh, similar to the one that's used by the sommeliers um, and also by by people in the beer industry to help you look analytically at a at a mead um, and and um, be, be uh, formulaic about how you analyze it. What, what's the acidity like? What's the sweetness like? What are the, what's the fruitiness like? Well, you know, how, how do you, how do you go through each of the components of the mead and, and apply um, really, really worthwhile and, and correct, you know, uh, accurate language to your description of the mead. Um, that's, that's right. There's a tasting grid that uh, my daughter, Allison's been working on. Uh, she's done a great job and, and I've been working on it too. She's, you know, some of the resources that she started with came from me, but um, we're, we're working on trying to get that out and to help the, the, the mead tasting and the mead consuming public have um, a, a unified view of what the beverage is like and, and, and help, help to create uh, standardized ways of saying, I like this kind of mead. I like, you know, this, this producer does this kind of stuff and this producer does this kind of stuff um, or, or, um, these meads fall into this set of uh, criteria, and um, our goal is to be able to have uh, that kind of information available uh, on on a number of different meads, and and also to provide the the tasting protocol for people to be able to deliver up that language. I want to close by touching a little bit on the humanistic side of what you're doing and the people that are kind of involved in what you do. And you mentioned working on some of these resources with your daughter. Uh, your daughter is involved in the company as the CEO. And if you kind of look through your website and look at your team members, it's pretty obvious that you enjoy working with people that are close to you uh, in your family and that are, are immediately in your community. Um, why is working with family an important thing for you? Both, both of my daughters work for the meter. My I stand daughter, corrected. Well, my, my eldest daughter, I mean, a lot of people know Allison because Allison has been with the meadery since it got started, but Sarah has joined the meadery now too. And she's living at the orchard and working as, uh, as the property supervisor there. And she also does, um, she, if you saw the honeyberry labels and the strawberry labels, she, she, those, that's her artwork. Uh, so she's been doing, she's been doing, uh, wonderful things for us. And she's also, I mean, she's always been doing a lot of, um, well, I mean, we, when we when we had to change all of the licensing because it was tied to the tasting room, which had to close because of the pandemic, uh, she stepped in and and helped. And she and James were the ones that actually got all the licenses transferred from one place to the other, which had to happen really fast. <laughs> so you rub them in your face. We did a lot of face rubbing during that process ourselves. So, so yep, yep, all of them, uh, uh, both of my daughters worked for us, and it's. I mean, the, the whole goal of this was that I, I saw, I saw one of my, one of my best friends is a business owner. And I saw, I saw what the business did for his family, the kind of opportunity it created. And I also looked at how we could, you know, 
I, I look at I look at the the families in Italian wine, right? The families in Burgundy. It's it's magnificent what happens when you take a family and allow it to accumulate the knowledge of how to make something better and better and better over generations. That's that's why Burgundy is as good as it is. That's why Barolo and Brunello and and those wines from from uh, you know, all across France that come from from family owned wineries, and and the same thing's true with you know the, the German breweries. That's that's how and the Belgian breweries. That's how you get better. You pass the information down from one generation to another generation and let them stand on shoulders. And that's what I wanted to do. I'm interested in your, uh, in sort of your sources of inspiration as well. And so it's very clear that you are impassioned by bev- alcoholic bev- and beverages in general, uh, looking at things from super broad strokes and finding profiles. Your meads are inspired by the flavors that you experience in wines and spirits as well. And beers. Do you find new sources of inspiration? And where are you looking for inspiration now? How has that changed over time? Well, I find inspiration in new kinds of fruit. I I, I find inspiration in th- things that I want to, you know, help. <laughs> um, we're going to try and we're going to try and we, we are growing Calafate. Calafate is a plant from Patagonian Chile and Argentina. It's, it's a berry, a barberry. It, it, it's incredible. I learned about it from a, a, a fly fisherman guide that used to guide me down in Chile. And unfortunately, his name was Claudio Ramos. He became a good friend. And, and unfortunately, uh, while he was guiding uh, a man on a, an elk hunt, he was, he was killed in a, in a hunting accident. And so I'm inspired by trying to take the calafate that he taught me about, which is this magnificent fruit, and then, and then make a mead to help his daughter Violetta go to college. I want to, hopefully I can grow enough calafate so that in a few years I'll be able to start a college fund for her. Um, That's an inspiration. I'm inspired, I'm inspired by Madeline, you know, Madeline uh, is, is my granddaughter. She was one pound, nine ounces when she was born. She, she went to, she went to virtual school at my kitchen table today. Um, Every time I look at her, I mean, it's, it's hard to, Sometimes it's really hard to talk about her, but I'll try and get through this without getting emotional. But uh, that's that's inspiration right there, and and so that that keeps me going. Um, every time I put something delicious in my mouth, I, I get inspired. And then every time I read about the incredible accomplishments of people in Chianti and and the Loire Valley and you know all these other places where these these people have been making these tremendous fruits and, and, and incredible sacrifices and dealing with the same stuff. You know, they get, we get, we get frosts and, and, and our cherry crop gets destroyed and they get hail. And, you know, it's just, it's just humans doing the best thing they can possibly do to give some, somebody else something fun to taste, you know, that, that to me 
is is inspiring that that that'll keep me going you know when i look at when i look at the uh the incredible sacrifices and the incredible um development that those people have gone through to to make themselves into really good uh winemakers and beer makers you know the, the stuff that they have done and cheesemakers i mean it's not it's not just that it's it, there's there's all all these people around the world bakers who have have done all this and and what they're really trying hard to do is to give other people um just a little bit of joy on their tongue and i i think that's i think that's really inspiring this has been a pleasure having you on the show ken thank you so much for joining us do you have any kind of parting words for for our listeners I, I would, I would kind of, I, I hate to sound like I'm begging, but I, I do hope that people will support this kind of activity. Um, we, we won't ever get to where we know as much as we need to know to make the best mead that we can possibly make if we don't go through all of the you know, we're going to go through some, some things, you know, we're going to, we're going to try and make some meads out of some fruits that may not be perfect. But, but that will be, that will be the process that hopefully gives, um, really great mead to the, to the drinkers that are going to be coming along 50 and, and 100 and 200 years from now. It will be wonderful if we could, if the gift that we could give to those people is to understand which, which fruit varieties really, really, um, make, make your, make your head spin. So, so you know, stay with us, please. We hope you've enjoyed the episode so far. Ken shared a number of stories with us about his time as a sound engineer. We enjoyed this particular story about the band Rush so much that we had to share it with you. Don't forget to check out the companion playlist he made for this episode in the notes. Enjoy. I worked, I worked for the Palace of Auburn Hills, right where the Pistons used to play, and I was a production supervisor for the Palace for six years. And, and I used to do a lot of long days because, you know, I was the production supervisor, which meant I was supposed to be in at nine. And if the event lasted until 11 at night, that was a 14 hour day. That's kind of long. And, and, uh, and, and I was, I was doing uh, video engineering the show for Rush when they were at the, at the palace and they, they did uh, a great job. I, I actually directed the video for the, uh, the opening act. And, and then uh, one of my colleagues directed the video for, for the, uh, uh, the, the rush part of the show. And I, I was the en video engineer. And, and when we got done and I'm, it was my job to make sure that the whole thing got recorded. Um, and I was wiped out. I was ready to leave. So I told the, the crew chief, uh, look, I'm, I, I want to get out of here. You, you here, here's where the rush tape and, and everyone got their own tape, right? If rush decides to do image mag, we, we, we record the thing and you know, someone from the band shows up and, and checks it out. So the guy from the band shows up and he checks it out and he's like, this is cool. We don't have a, we don't have a tape deck in our in our uh, in our locker or in our uh, dressing room. Can we can I bring uh, some of the band down here? I said, yeah, okay. So it's going to be a few minutes, but but I and I was wiped out. I was like, okay. I grabbed Steve Biondo. Steve, here's the tape. Here's how to put it. You know, <laughs> put it up on the monitor. I, in fact, I even put it up on the monitors for them and the big monitors in the in the control room. And, and I was like, I'm getting out of here. So they come back five minutes after I've left. Getty Lee 
shows up the whole the whole band shows up and sits down and watches a half an hour of the tape this is great this is so good you guys did a great job blah 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 blah. Right? you know and then he says to him what are you doing and by now it's you know it's now it's way after the show it's it's like one in the morning and uh steve's like well i don't know what do you what do you guys want to do uh well uh is there a bowling alley around here <laughs> so steve says yeah there is <laughs> in fact i i know the i know the owner so he calls his buddy up hey uh rush wants to go bowling you are you good you good with that he's like yeah we'll shut the place down shut the place down rush and, and the tv crew go off and bowl until like four in the morning and i i missed the whole thing <laughs> I, I missed it all i mean i i met a bunch of people i met i met uh you know well a bunch of people i'm not going to drop a whole bunch more names but i met a bunch of rock stars and i met a bunch of other people but i never got to go bowling with rush <laughs> so that's that's one of my one of my best missed opportunities in my whole life oh that's incredible i would have held that over my colleague for a very very long time oh they, you <laughs> held it over me. it's like piano's like hey uh you're gonna cut out early tonight, night tram can i can i uh where's the tape